So, just last month, during a meeting, I could feel anger surging through my mind, my heart, and in my bones. And then it welled up and I vomited on a friend in malice. Recently, the CDC has marked out that they, we have an outbreak of listeria um, that's causing bacterial meningitis. Bacterial meningitis is awful. It causes stiffness, spasticity, change of mental awareness. And I found myself caring for someone in the ICU battling with this disease. The Church Two movement exposed the gross underbelly of the church and how Satan infiltrated and devoured precious little sheep within the walls of the church. Our church here has experienced some division, a spirit maybe of frustration and anger, and the evil one is on the prowl seeking our church. Sometimes we encounter people in the community or at work who are hostile to us simply because we love God and we love his commands. What do all these things have in common? It's the church of Christ battling with her enemies. We face many enemies in this world, our own sin, doing battle within our own hearts, the curse and the brokenness of our own bodies, our great enemy, Satan, and death, and other people who hate the church and her Lord. And friends, I feel the weight of this battle right now feel the weight of my own sin, the frailty of my own body, and the hostility within and without the church walls. What can be done? How can we find hope in the midst of these battles? If you would, please stand as we listen to how God responds. morning. I'll be reading Mark 12, verses 35 through 37 from the Christian Standard Bible, and Psalm 110 from the English Standard Version, starting with Mark 12, verses 35 through 37. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he asked, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself says by the Holy Spirit, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And the large crowd was listening to him with delight. And now Psalm 
1.10, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. <clears throat> so we are continuing our series on the life of David, uh, a sinner after God's own heart. And instead of looking forward from David's time to ours, we will be looking back to David from the time of the first century, the time when Jesus was ministering in the area of Judea. So how many of you know someone who likes to debate? Any of you know anybody that likes to debate? Yes. Yeah. And they're always right. They're never wrong, right? <laughs> uh, well, Jesus also knew some people like this. And Mark 12 is filled with these people who like to debate. I call them Theobros. Um, they're also known as uh, scribes and Pharisees. And they're debating with Jesus over whether there's a resurrection, whether they should pay taxes to Caesar, uh, what's the greatest law in the Torah. Um, and, and what Jesus does is he performs some jujitsu. Um, answering their questions and objections and silencing them. And he uses their own tactics against them. And so Jesus asks them this question. How can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? Well, as we look at this question and as we look at this passage, we will look at three different things. First, we're going to look at who or what is the Messiah Second, we'll look at the fact that the Messiah is David's Lord. And then third, we'll look at how all of our enemies, all of your enemies, are under the Messiah's feet. So who or what is the Messiah? Where does the idea of the Messiah come from, and why is it important for us? Um, you can put up the slide on the screen here. The Messiah comes from two different words, um, Mashiach from Hebrew is where we get Messiah, or Christos in Greek, which is where we get Christ. They both mean the same thing. They both mean the anointed one. Um, the Old Testament uses the imagery of anointing in several places. 
It first occurs in Exodus, where the Lord gives instructions to Moses about the priesthood of Aaron. And the Lord tells Moses to collect some balsam oil for the anointing in Exodus 25. Then in Exodus 29, the Lord gives Moses instructions on how to anoint Aaron as high priest. And it says in Exodus 39, And you will bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of assembly, and you will wash them with water. And you will take the garments and clothe Aaron with the tunic and the robe of the ephod, and you will fasten to him the ephod and the breastplate with the waistband of the ephod. And you will set the turban on his head, and you will put the holy diadem on the turban. And you will take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. So what does this mean? It means that the anointed one is going to be the high priest. And, and when we find ourselves lying in a hospital bed, or when we find ourselves struggling deeply with temptation and sin, who do we want? What type of person do we want to be at our side at that moment when we're fighting against these enemies? We want a priest-like person, a priestly person, someone who understands our infirmities, someone who understands our temptations and is willing to come alongside us and to struggle on our behalf against these enemies. So that's the first time the anointing is mentioned. The second time, or the next time it's anointed outside of the priesthood and its duties is when Hannah is praying and she's exulting in the Lord. And this is the last stanza in her song. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10. Yahweh will shatter his adversaries. He will thunder against them in the heavens. Yahweh will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and will exalt the mighty one, the might of his anointed one. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 9, Samuel is told by the Lord to find Saul and anoint him as king over Israel. Um, and it says, uh, after Saul is anointed, Samuel says to him, the spirit of Yahweh will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them, and you will turn into a different person. And then Saul is rejected as king, and Samuel is told to go to Bethlehem, to the house of Jesse, and to find the new king. And in 1 Samuel 16, it says, So Jesse sent and brought David. Now he was ruddy, with beautiful eyes, and of handsome appearance. And Yahweh said, rise, anoint him, for this is he. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of Yahweh rushed upon David from that day on. And so what does this mean? It means that the anointed one is going to be the king. And friends, when it's clear, when you feel that the spiritual forces of evil have their sights on you or on your loved ones, 
or when your fellow man rebels and seeks ways to hurt, abuse, or disgrace you or your family, who do you want by your side? You want the king of armies, the captain of the forces of light, the commander of hosts. You want the good king by your side at that moment. And so as I think about this, I think about um, the return of the king. And we see Menes Terath being attacked from within and without. The steward of the realm is going through a psychotic rage and grief, and he's attempting to murder his own son. The forces of mortar are infiltrating the city, and only the true king can summon the hosts from the mountains and unite the forces of elves and men against the army of orcs and darkness. And the good king, the king, leads this united army to victory, wielding the sword of Isildur against the forces of Sauron. That is what we want when we are faced against the armies of darkness, a good king. So we've seen that the anointed one is both the high priest and the anointed one is the true and good king. So who is the Messiah? Who is the anointed one? Well, he's going to be a priestly king, one who can enter into our suffering and fight for us, and one who goes toe-to-toe against the forces of evil so he can protect us. Let's go back to Jesus' question for the scribes. Is the Messiah the son of David? What do you think? Is the Messiah the son of David? Anyone? Yes, no? Yes, yes. The Lord promised David an everlasting dynasty so that his son would be the one to rule. So yes, the Messiah is David's son, but Jesus' purpose in asking this question is to trip the scribes, uh, to make them confused, to trap them. Um, And he uses this jujitsu move, using the weight of the forces of uh, using the weight and force of their own tactics against them. And so Jesus points the scribes to Psalm 110, where the Messiah is described in detail. And Jesus points out that this psalm is penned by David, and that David calls the Messiah, my Lord. He says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And this is why grammar matters. Um, The Hebrew literally says, Yahweh declares to my Lord. Um, You can kind of see here, we're going to teach you some Hebrew. Um, The first section there, la, means to. And then next section, Adonai, Adon, means Lord. And then the nai means my, to my Lord. And and friends, this is why we believe that the Holy Spirit inspired not just the meaning of the text, but the very words and grammar of the scriptures in their original languages. Because this is important. 
to my Lord. And Jesus affirms this. And he even says, David himself says, by the Holy Spirit. So, friends, when we are reading the scriptures, we are reading God's very word to us. Um, and what he says is, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And what Jesus is saying is that David, who was moved by the Holy Spirit, prophesied about the coming Messiah, and in doing so, he called the Messiah his very own Lord. But why is this important? Why did Jesus point this out, and how did he use it to trip up the Pharisees? Um, Well, back in their day, back in the society and culture of the first century, it would be completely unheard of for a son to call his father for a father to call his son Lord. The son would always be under his father, both in position and class. So it would be completely, completely unheard of and completely ridiculous to have a father call his son Lord. And so what that means is that the Pharisees are confused. The scribes Their mouths are shut. It's interesting. In Matthew's account of this very interaction, it says um, in Matthew 22, 46, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. Like this tripped the scribes and Pharisees so much that it shut their mouths and that they didn't dare ask Jesus any more questions. They're like, he's too powerful. His jujitsu moves are too crazy. I can't do this. Um, And so they were done. And he did this before when he confronted the religious leaders in Matthew 21, where Jesus answered them. He says, I'll ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And the Pharisees described. Uh, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid the crowd, they all hold that John is a prophet. And so they were, they were, they were stuck. They couldn't answer him. Jesus did this very, very many times with the Pharisees and the scribes. And their silence here in this passage is loud. It screams that the Messiah, according to the David, would be someone greater than himself, someone who precedes David, someone whose position is higher than his. The Messiah would be someone who David himself would bow down to. The Messiah would be Adonai. My Lord, according to David. And the way this is, the way this is read um, out loud in the Hebrew, it would sound very much like it does in our English. The Lord said to my Lord. Even though it's Yahweh declared to Adonai, they would not use the word Yahweh. They would use Adon, Adonai. 
So Adon said to Adonai is the way that they would say it. And you can kind of hear it. There's a reverberation of this very phrase, Jesus is praying to God. And he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people. Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Can you hear it? The father said to the son, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. The Messiah is David's son, and he is David's Lord. David would bow to the Messiah. Why? Because he is also the son of the father, the second person of the Trinity. So we've looked at what is the Messiah. We've looked at the fact that the Messiah is not just David's son, but his Lord. And now what we're going to do is we're going to look at how the Messiah will put all of your enemies under his feet. So what does it mean that the Lord will put the Messiah's enemies under his feet? Well, I think, first of all, it's a recapitulation of the very first promise about the Messiah that we find when the Creator says to that crafty serpent, and he, that is the Messiah, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The Messiah will stomp on the head of the evil one. But I think in order to understand this fully, we should look at the rest of Psalm 110, which says, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning, The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth, and he will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. I see two different ways that the Lord will put the enemies of the Messiah under his rule. The first way the Lord puts the enemies under the Messiah's feet is by executing judgment. Executing judgments on the nations by shattering kings and chiefs and all those who reject Messiah. We can see that in verses 5 through 7. And what this means is that he's going to take the rulers, the principalities, the forces of evil, and completely vanquish them. He will completely defeat them. There will not be one evil one left. You guys remember Saul? Why was the anointed crown taken from Saul? Does anyone remember why Saul? Yes, He was disobeying God's commandments. Yes. Do you remember which command that he disobeyed? Yes, back there. Yes, yes. Only the priests were allowed to make sacrifice, and he made a sacrifice. 
And there's one other reason. He was disobeying God's commands. Yes. Close. The Amalekites. But yes. Yes. <laughs> he was told to completely destroy the enemy of God's people. Yeah. Yeah. You guys are being taught very well. Very good. Um, it is because he would not vanquish all of the enemies of God. He kept Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. And David defeated the enemies of God, but he also, he, he did something else. He trampled under feet the people he was supposed to protect. He sent Uriah to his death. And his very own sin led to the slaughter and disgrace of most of his very own family. His sin sent a crack through the nation of Israel and Judah. So, does anyone remember the reason that David was told that he could not build the temple? Anyone remember that? Yes, young man over there. <laughs> yes, he was a king of war. He had blood on his hands. David was a man of bloodshed. And what's... What's interesting, I don't think that, that God meant the blood of Goliath or the blood of the Amalekites or the blood of the Philistines. He was talking about that innocent blood. David shed blood of the innocent and the evil. And so this Messiah, he's going to be a king unlike Saul who will completely vanquish his enemies. And he will be a king unlike David with clean hands and a pure heart. So he's going to be a better king than Saul and a better king than David. Why does this matter? Why does it matter that the Messiah vanquish his enemies completely? Friends, it's because your enemies are the Messiah's enemies. The ones who battle against you are the ones that Messiah will fight against. It means that Jesus, the Messiah, will put every one of your enemies under his feet. So the curse that brings sickness and brokenness and pain and sorrow, crushed under the feet of the Messiah. Our sin, which corrupts us and kills us from the inside out, crushed under the feet of the Messiah. Our great enemy, Satan himself, crushed under the feet of Messiah. The final enemy to be destroyed, death, crushed under the foot of the risen Messiah. It is so important that the Messiah put his enemies under his feet so that you can be set free from the tyranny of your enemies. And remember, I said that there's two reasons. That was the first reason. The second one, the second way that the Lord would destroy the enemies of the Messiah is by making his enemies his friend. It says that the people given to Messiah will offer themselves freely 
as living sacrifices to Messiah. In verse 3, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. And it says, they'll be wrapped in holy garments, clothed in the righteousness of the Messiah. And the Messiah is not only this king who will vanquish all of the enemies by crushing them under your feet, he is also the anointed high priest. But unlike Aaron, who had to make atonement for his own sin and the sins of his people year after year, the Messiah will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, as you can see in verse 4. The high priest forever who makes atonement for his people's sins by a single sacrifice of his own body on the cross. In Hebrews 10, 12 through 14, it says, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, listen, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What is it saying? It's saying, this is how the Messiah will put some of his enemies under his feet. He will pay for their sins and he will perfect them and make them new. So the Messiah will atone for your sin. He will forgive you. He will perfect you. He will make you new. How does he do this? Because he selflessly gives himself for you and to you. And remember when Saul and David were anointed king? What happened to them when they were anointed as king? And this was at the beginning of the sermon. So you might have been sleeping then. Um, what happened when David and Saul were anointed as king? Anyone? Yes, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon them. This, my friends, is the true anointing. The Holy Spirit coming, empowering, enabling the anointed ones to fulfill the office that they're called to. And so what does the Messiah do? The Messiah is the one who is completely filled with the Holy Spirit. The one who always obeys the Spirit, even when it leads him into the desert to be tempted by Satan. He always listens to the Holy Spirit. The Messiah, after he makes atonement for sins, he sits at the right hand of God. We see that. But then what does he do? What does he do while he's sitting at the right hand of God? At Pentecost, the Son and the Father send the Holy Spirit to descend upon the church so that, friends, you are the anointed ones. You are the ones anointed by the Holy Spirit. You are filled with the Messiah. You embody the Messiah. You are united to him. And so what this means in a mysterious way, that you get to participate in the mission of the Messiah. It's interesting, the Holy Spirit says in the, letter of, uh, in the letter to the Roman church, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. You 
are the embodiment of the Messiah here on earth. And the Messiah is calling you to be a part of his mission. His mission of crushing sin. How are we going to do that? By resisting Satan and temptation. He's, he's calling you to become those who crush the brokenness of this world. How? By being agents of healing. By bringing beauty in the midst of the ugliness in this world. By bringing love and kindness in the midst of hatred. He is calling you to his mission. And he's calling you to do this. He wants you to invite people in your life to the Messiah so that they can be forgiven, so that they can be filled with the Holy Spirit, so that they can offer themselves freely to the Messiah as a living sacrifice. This is what the Messiah is calling you to. He's not asking you to sit back and let him crush all of your enemies for you. He wants you to participate in it. You get to participate in it, and he will give you the power to do this because you are anointed with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for the Messiah, the one who is our king, who loves us and will crush and vanquish all of the enemies of God. Not one will be left on that final day. God, thank you for the Messiah, our anointed high priest, who made atonement for our sins, who sends the Holy Spirit upon us so that we can be empowered to be on mission with the Messiah here on earth now. I pray, oh God, right now, that you would pour out your spirit upon Ironworks Church that we might be agents of the Messiah to crush the enemies of sin, of brokenness, of death, of hatred, of Satan. And that we would welcome people who are currently enemies of God to be friends of the Messiah. Help us to do this. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.